Welcome to Bit First Byte, a weekly podcast about the web industry, tools and techniques upcoming and in use today. I'm Adam Listek, a web developer from Northern California and Central Illinois. If you'd like to help support the show, please tap the link in this episode's description if you're using the Anchor application, or visit anchor.fm slash bit-v-byte to become a monthly supporter. On a different note, this is my 50th episode, and I honestly can't believe I've done that many. It was only a bit ago that I was just remarking on the fact that I had done this show for one full year, and now getting to 50 feels like an even bigger accomplishment. So I really do want to thank all my listeners, and I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and support the show. So starting things off, uh, we have some news. So there's a couple different things I want to talk about. Uh, Facebook had yet another bug. Uh, in this case, it was with photos. And it inadvertently allowed uh, certain segments of developers and applications to access both private and public photos. It was in the several millions. They quickly fixed it, but it really did illustrate another case of how large some of these bugs can actually go and how many people can affect. And really the reporting, the repercussions around this, I know that there are already GDPR implications in the EU uh, countries that this could have, and they're already looking into it, but it really kind of shows, well, what responsibility does companies have not only to report and let users know, but also what can they do to remediate and take you know, responsibility for these types of issues. No software is perfect. I completely understand that, having done a lot of coding over the years, and oftentimes you'll make a mistake, but even in a large company, you'll make mistakes. So how do you deal with that? How do you make sure that you try to mitigate that going forward? So it'll be interesting to see, but essentially Facebook says, sorry. There wasn't much more to it than that. It was just a apology, and that was about it. So we'll have to see what comes out of it, you know, moving further down the road. Uh, but it was of interest because it's yet another example of this type of issue. So there was a, a Marriott hack, actually um, one of their subsidiaries, subsidiaries, if I can say that word. Uh, but basically, uh, they uh, had a issue where their system was hacked several years ago, I believe in 2014. And it's come out that this was a most likely rep- it's being reported as a Chinese state-sponsored attack. And the main reason for this was because they are trying to collect information on personnel and where people are staying, what they're doing, what their habits are. And Marriott is a favorite establishment of many federal employees. So this was a way for them to gain essentially intelligence on those areas. Now, it's not 100% confirmed, uh, and nor would China ever cop up or any country really to this in terms of their intelligence efforts, but most likely it seems to be leaning that way. And it's really just a not to pick on China or anything, because you know, certainly the US does it, you know, all of the EU, you know, many countries do this. They all have their intelligence services trying to hack each other. But it really is yet another 
reminder to private companies to really make sure your security is the best it could possibly be. Uh, I mean, if you're thinking about it, how many different places are you incorporating code or are you allowing outside vendors access into things when if they were to get hacked, well, that's a way to get in. You know, those are often called supply chain attacks, but it's the same idea of how do you protect and what do you need to worry about? It's not just the, you know, uh, crime syndicates or individual uh, or just individuals trying to gain some money or uh, opportunity through your type of platform, but it's also state-sponsored many times. So something to keep in mind and a sobering reminder that, of course, this is still very much going on. Uh, Google said they're shutting down Google Plus another four months early, essentially due to yet a, another kind of privacy API data leak. They did uh, very quickly patch it, but it pretty much put the desire for them to finish this up and to close it out because it's not a platform they want to continue anyways. They want to shift their focus. And so in that regard, it was a foregone conclusion. They'd already said they were sunsetting it, but now it's going to just be a, a quicker move that way. There's an uh, interesting little bit of news about how uh, Windows 10 and the check for updates button worked. And why I thought this was interesting is because it's very relevant to all of the various issues that Windows updates have had in the past couple months. And what, the reason why it came up was because it's been said that what happens when you do the check for updates is you may be opted into essentially testing, you know, releases of different patches and bugs, uh, bug fixes out there, even if you're not within, say, an insider program or in that regard. So it's very much re recommended you don't use that functionality and just let the updates come naturally. Uh, there might be some command line ways around it, but certainly that button that you can find is not, and I potentially right now, not an ideal way to go about it. Another interesting thing was Firefox 64 uh, for Android was actually canceled and kind of pulled back. And they have a 64.0.1 coming out. And the reason being is that there was a crash in here. And I thought this was kind of interesting because it's rare to see a, a full release like that be pulled back, especially for a company such as, or as large as Firefox is. So it's kind of interesting to see what they're doing with it, uh, how that they handled that going forward, and hopefully kind of catch those things as they go. And this may be a little bit of a uh, wake-up call to make sure we didn't test something or we missed something. Moving on to some links and resources, I found a couple things that I found uh, interesting. There is a kind of open API uh, site uh, called STAE, uh, and it's actually municipal.systems, which is kind of a cool URL. But essentially what it is is a collection of APIs uh, for municipal systems. So, you know, road data, crime data, all that kind of stuff, and in a way to explore it and see what you can cobble together and see interesting trends and that kind of stuff. But pretty cool site. Uh, check it out. Another thing was a, a blog article uh, by Webflow about the 20 web design trends for 2019. 
and I always find these interesting because, you know, trends are, I, I feel not that important in my opinion, but it does actually, I, I tend to look at these because it gives me ideas in terms of, well, what's the rest of the industry maybe doing and why? And more importantly, the why is, why, is what I looked for. But this was actually a pretty good article written by uh, Webflow that had a, a somewhat humorous take on some of these. Uh, it was a legit article in terms of looking at these kind of trends, but I liked how it was written. And there's some interesting ideas in there and, and really around how a lot of the trend is kind of going towards more art-driven uh, kind of views and layouts. So, you know, it's, it's certainly been widely criticized that many of the sites out there kind of look the same. You know, in some ways that's good in terms of user experience and in other ways I can understand why they all look cookie cutter. It's hard to differentiate yourself. But this is showing a couple ways you can do that and where things are going in terms of like artsy illustrations or gradients or a little bit different layouts. I did like how they had a take on the the new hero where you used to have a big picture at the beginning and then you would put or at the top of the page and you put some text over that. And now it's the the most common layout model for that seems to be a illustration to the right and a call out action button and some text on the left. and. It's funny how, yeah, it's an evolution in some ways, uh, but it is becoming, this is the new thing to do for all the sites. Uh, so it's not to discount those kind of things. They certainly have their place and very useful. I've certainly used them myself, but it is interesting to see what others are doing and what we could be missing and what other things we should do. There's a kind of cool site, uh, these plus codes. It's kind of unrelated to... Uh, web design and that kind of stuff, but I, I thought it was interesting because it is a location system that's open source and a way to essentially divvy up the Earth Earth's surface into these plus codes, uh, where it's a, it's a little code that you can essentially mark a parcel of land, and it may be a house or maybe a plot you're on, uh, but it's a way to especially notate things that may not have a proper like street address or marker. And it's a very universal system, so it could be anywhere in the world. It could be a plot of you know, land in the ocean, and it would still have that specific code. And you know, why I thought this was kind of relevant was, you know, if you're look, paying attention to political news, there was a, a case where a lot of Native American areas don't necessarily have uh, street names or addresses, they use P.O. boxes, and, you know, uh, had difficulty in voting. And because of that, uh, I thought this was kind of an interesting system, you know, and maybe someday would gain some traction, uh, at least as a way to kind of reference other areas, uh, specifically, you know, if they don't have what could be a common convention for addressing in that given area. And finally, I want to uh, make a note about the Refactoring UI book. This was finally released, uh, and I bought it because I've been waiting on this one for a long time. It is excellent, a great roundup of very relevant, easy-to-follow ideas and uh, UI suggestions and notes. So if you get a chance, I highly recommend picking this up. I really like it, and I'm looking forward to even more updates as it goes forward. So check it out. 
And finally, I want to kind of talk about the weakening of privacy and specifically around encryption in this case. And so what made me think about this and take an interest was the recently passed Australian privacy law, uh, and it's really an encryption law, I should say. And what it is, is a law intended to force tech companies to allow uh, law enforcement to be a part of conversations that were previously private or be able to access the data and messaging between parties that they previously couldn't. Now, it does say you can't put a systemic weakness, i.e. like the same vulnerability for all messaging apps, but you can compel one specific application, like say WhatsApp, to have a backdoor to allow them to do this. Additionally, they can ask employees of a company to help them put in or weaken this with the threat of prison time, and they don't have to necessarily report to the company. So you can essentially walk up to an employee and say, hey, you better do this for us, otherwise you'll go to prison. This is in you know, the veil of security for the country, and you can't tell your employer about this. I mean, not only does that put an employee in a hugely problematic position, but it also is terrible for the companies and for the trust that you know users might have on this. So how can this affect the global market? Well, if, you're, if you have applications built for the Australian market, that'll ultimately affect the whole market. Otherwise, most companies would have to maintain two code bases, which is pretty unlikely. And how does that work with interoperability between messaging from, say, an Australian individual to, you know, someone in the U.S.? And it's going to be, if you have to build the back door in for Australia, well, of course, it's probably going to be there as well for every other place. So if you have to build these kind of back doors or ways for law enforcement to get in and do this, well, inevitably a vulnerability is going to be found by some enterprising individual and they'll find a way to exploit it. The idea behind the encryption where it's out of the hands of the company providing it, where it's too, you know, this end-to-end -end encryption where perhaps the company doesn't have the keys to decrypt the data and that is strictly passed between two individuals, means that they don't know what's being messaged. They can't actually go in and say, yep, Here's the messages. We've decrypted them for you. They don't hold the keys. They can't do it. But if they build in a way to either weaken that where, yeah, most of the times it's end-to-end -end and most normal people won't be able to read it, but we've built in this one provision that allows us to decrypt these messages in this specific case, well, that could very much be a problem. And eventually that vulnerability would be found and used. So the the quote-unquote Five Eyes Intelligence Group, which is, you know, a lot of mostly European, Australian, um, U.S. companies and or uh, countries, they've been looking into this for a long time now. And if it works in Australia, it'll inevitably end up being attempted by these other intelligence agencies. I mean, we've seen this in the past where the U.S. has tried this several times. Apple notably went to the map for this one and said, nope, we're not going to do it. In that case, they did find a way around it at the time, but it's still eventually 
if they're being forced with uh, prison time or the countries are being looking at multi-million dollar fines for not helping, that could be a huge issue. So I do understand that there's a balance between policing crime and individual privacy, but it seems like there has to be a better way to do this that balances all sides. You know, nothing would ever be perfect, but the weakening of this privacy traditionally seems to be mostly used for repressing free speech and in, in individuals, and that seems like, despite the best efforts, would probably inevitably happen even in the best of situations and democracies. So I can't see how this particular desire to weaken the privacy, to make it so that law enforcement can have easy access to these types of messaging would be a good thing overall for the industry. Because if you open that door, then you're going to open the door for so many more nefarious actors and individuals that will ultimately take advantage of the system. So hopefully there is a large pushback. There have been by, of course, the tech companies and many consumers and individuals, but it's, it's hard to in, this, in the midst of everything going on in the world, pay attention to these kinds of things and the ultimate consequences it may have. But here is looking to maybe get some of that out there and pay attention to see how will this ultimately affect other countries, other areas, and what it does to the products themselves. So follow this podcast on Twitter at BitVBite and Facebook at slash BitVBite. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week.